Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Did you have a good 4th of July? Good, good relaxing time, hopefully? No relaxing? No relaxing? It feels odd when it falls a day in the middle of the week like that. Just feels like today should be Monday all over again after having yesterday off, but it's not. It's Thursday. So uh, good to have you in Bible study today. We want to pick up on John chapter 8 where we left off. Um, I, I want to backtrack just a little. I started into the next section the last time, and um, that next section was verses 30, began with verses uh, 32. Or 31, actually. This eighth chapter is a fairly long uh, conversation between Jesus and these leaders of the Jews, as well as people in the crowd. And you remember that um, when we met last time, one of the closing thoughts we had was this idea that Jesus said, I went ahead and read you the first few verses of the next section. Where Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I want to talk this morning about what that freedom really is and what that truth really is. But remember how last week it said that many, well the closing words of last week's uh, scriptures was many believed in him. There were many people, not everybody was rejecting Jesus. Many were starting to believe in him. And then this section begins... With verse 31, I'm going to read 31 through 41. And I may have read all of this the last time at the very end. I can't remember how much time. I didn't have enough time to go through all that I wanted to teach on it. So I'm going to read 31 through 41, just 10 verses. The dialogue doesn't really finish till the end of the chapter. All the way through chapter 8 is this dialogue. But we're going to take it in pieces uh, because he's talking about some pretty, pretty deep things here. So in verse 31, chapter 8. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. How is it that you say, quote, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You do what your father did. Let's stop there, and, and, uh, and I, even though I know we talked about it a little bit, let's stop there and go over a few things here. In that first verse... 
as he speaks to the people who had believed in him. Jesus uses a little tiny prepositional phrase. A little tiny prepositional phrase. A little word with two letters. But boy, they have a lot of meaning. That little word, if. If. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. So let's, what can we learn from that? Let's think what can we learn from that. Is it, en- is it enough to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus if we believe in him, join the church, get baptized, come to worship? Is that all? Is that all we need to do? Or is it, is it, does that work? Is that enough to be a dis- considered a disciple of Jesus? Apparently not. I'm tricking you a little bit here. Apparently not. That's what they did. They the, thought Abraham took care of it. They, they thought they were members, so therefore they were in. Okay? They were relying on their heritage and their status as a child of Abraham. And they were in with God. There's no way they could be out with God. What, I want to, what I'm concerned about is that in, in the Christian faith today, we've lost sight of what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus. What we're doing here today, you know, the reason we come today, we're trying to do what he says, where he says, continue in my word. This is Bible study, and that is the word of God, and we're studying the word of God, but yet Jesus doesn't quite mean what we're doing here today. Because that word, word, is not the word for the Bible. We talked about that before. You know the two Greek words for the word, word. This is going to sound confusing. (laughs) The word, word, in the New Testament Greek, is used two different ways. It's used with the word logos, and it's used with the word graphene. Logos, graphene, from which we get graffiti. If Jesus meant the written word, only the scriptures, he would have used the word graphene, but he didn't. He used the word logo or logos on purpose. So let's think about that phrase. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will, then you are truly my disciples. So to be, there's, if there's truly disciples, then there's falsely disciples. See, Jesus chooses his words. These are not, John is using Jesus' words here. He's writing them carefully and and we believe in in an inspired way. He wants to make a point. There is such thing as false disciples. So what's the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple? It's not so much what they believe. They believe the exact same things. So what's the difference? What they do. So I heard you say that. I like that answer. It's what they do. So what do they do differently? What does a true disciple do that a false disciple doesn't necessarily do? These are new disciples that Jesus is talking to. They're new people that have come to him. And he wants to be sure he helps them understand the difference between a false disciple and a true disciple. You see, it's easy to come to Jesus. What the people are learning, it's easy to come to Jesus. But it's not necessarily so easy to stay with Jesus. So, and this is true in our world today. 
Many people come to church. Many people come and visit church. Many people come. It's like a revolving door sometimes. Many people come and stay for a little while and go. We hope they find another church. Hope we find the body of Christ somehow. But, but many people, we, we can all sit here and think about people that we've known. Their faces will come to your mind. that used to be part of the fellowship that aren't anymore. And some of them we even know are in the community, but they're really not even in church anywhere. And that breaks my heart as I'm sure it does yours too. And I don't want to cause a, I I don't want to be their judge and say they're not in Christ, but they're not doing something that is important here. They're not continuing in his word as well as they could. So what I want to uncover with you today in this section of scripture is what does it mean to continue in his word as well as we can if we're to be truly his disciples. Because then his next phrase in verse 32 is, if you do this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do we know the truth? If we study the Bible, we do. Remember the question, what did Pilate ask of Jesus? Pilate said, what is truth? You know? So that's a good question. What is truth? So we want to look this morning at what is truth. I'll go ahead and put this on the board here. What is truth? And what does it mean to continue Continue in, I'm going to write the Greek word here, the logos. To continue in his word. Because sometimes we just get confused if we just use the word word. So, first off, Jesus makes it very clear that there's, with this this little word, if. If you do this, you will. If you don't, that's the same as saying, if you don't, you won't. Okay, or if you don't, you probably won't be able to stay. So, it's it's imperative that we uncover what this means. Um, The word truth, let me begin with verse 32 in the word truth. How would you define truth if you were visiting or with people and they have a discussion, maybe... A seeker, and they said, "Well, you're trying to tell them that Jesus Christ is the truth, and you can maybe quote John 14 that says, "I'm the truth, the way, you know, the way, the truth, and the life." Jesus said, but when the person looks you in the face and says, "What is the truth, really? What is it?" The word of God. Word, which what word do you mean? Remember, there's two Greek words. Word is logos, and it's graphene. Logos is original, isn't it? Logos, this means written, okay? Graphene means written. This means the mind of, mind of God. Okay, as best we can describe it. The logos is more than a written word. And so that's the challenge we have. Some people feel, well, the truth is, if we're, we're in this talk and discussion with you, we feel the truth is the Bible. You hear that from people? Yeah, evangelicals are famous for saying the truth is the Bible. The Bible's the truth. You, you look like that. Had a thought is, there. Is the truth anything that's real and undeniable? Yes. Yes. Here is, and why do I say that? Because most of our culture is today saying, no, truth is relative. Most of our culture says truth is relative. It's relative to the time you live in. It's relative to you and your life. Hey, yeah, it may be true for you, but that's not true for me. That's the definition that 
all around us, people in our culture are using for truth. How did we get there? Because that was not the original definition of truth. That's not at all. We're going to talk about what did Jesus mean by this. There is a Greek word for truth, and that Greek word is aletheia. Aletheia. Aletheia means, in the Greek, something that is fact, that is certain, and that cannot be disputed. In fact, it's often the word used for reality. This is reality. This is real. This is, this is what it means to be and to be real and to be fact. It's the very opposite of what it means to be an illusion or to be a maybe or might be. So there is this, there is this in the Greek language, there is this concreteness in their words. And if somebody means truth, they mean something that's indisputable. Okay? And Jesus wants us to know that this indisputable truth will set us free. And we're going to talk a little bit. I've got to write words to remind myself. Free. Free from what? We'll talk about that in a little bit too. Because Jesus wants us to know, we're going to connect all these dots, that truth, if we can figure out what that is, and continuing in him will help us to truly be his disciples. And if we do that, we're set free. Free from what? Well, in the context of Jesus, what you, a lot of things, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me get, get ahead of myself here. So another, I want to give you another word for truth. It's not in the Greek language. Okay, the Greek, I gave you the Greek. But I believe another word you can substitute for the word truth there is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is truth. Truth is eternal. There is no was the truth, but is not the truth anymore. Truth is eternal. And Jesus is eternal. Okay? That's why Jesus could say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is the reality of all of life. And I mean, he is the source of life. He's the essence of life. He's where life begins because he had life before the beginning. He was begotten before all worlds. And it blows our mind to even think about what that means. There was never a time, this is the way the ancient fathers said it, there was never a time when he was not. There was never a time when Jesus, or God, if you will, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was not. They are eternally existent before all worlds. We can either accept that, or we can reject that. But you reject that at your own peril. Okay? I like the guy who said once, uh, you know, you've heard it said, you know, I, if what I say is true and you reject it, then you've got to deal with eternal rejection. But if what I say is not true and you reject it, then I'm still okay. Neither one of us have to worry about some eternal rejection or eternal damnation or anything like that, you know. So, Here's the beautiful point. That's kind of a negative sell, if you were, in the world of selling. But, but do you see what I mean by that? Or did I confuse you? In other words, if hell is real, and I believe it is, and there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned, and Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the life, and I believe that, if I believe that, and if you don't, well, you're the one with the problem. 
Okay? Because I, I'm, I'm striving for heaven. But if I'm wrong, and Jesus isn't the way, and he isn't the truth, and he isn't the life, well then, did I really lose anything if there's no heaven and no hell, like some people want to tell us? I didn't really lose anything. So, are you willing to bet your whole eternity on what you think might be truth, and what you think might be a relative truth, and what you think might be, you know, the, the reality after we die? So there's, there's just so much that's practical about our faith and our understanding of believing in Christ and who he is. That we tend to, I mean, the world around us is just unbelievably rejecting about everything that we teach if we're not careful. And one of the reasons I believe they're rejecting it is, is because of the way we've taught it. And that's why I want to come back to this word, word. Logos and graphene. Sometimes we evangelicals are famous for preaching the word and what we really mean is we're preaching the Bible. Because the Bible, we say, is the word of God. And it is in a form. But it's not the word of God. It's a form of the word of God. It's written words from God. From God's inspiration. But it's not God. The Bible's not God. And in fact, there was a time... There was a time when the Bible was not. You with me? There was a time when the Bible was not. Who was God then? God. God. Well, who, where, where, where did his truth come from if there was no Bible? His which word? Wasn't this one. This one didn't exist. His logos. Because the logos has always existed. And so what I, want to, what, I, what I want us to get to is I think if we're going to begin to win the culture war, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was in a culture war here. The, these were the, this was a culture. These were the children of Abraham. And they were so proud to be the children of Abraham. They knew, they believed that as children of Abraham, they were in. They had a Get out of hell free card if, if they didn't really believe in hell the way we would talk about it. But I'm just using that as a, as a kind of a metaphor that breaks down here. They had to get out of the bad part of the world free because they were God's chosen. And the world and the world to come, the afterlife, the world to come was meant for them just because they were Abraham's child. And it was only meant for them. Only them. So into this world, Jesus, into this culture, that culture, Jesus comes and he starts to teach them you know what? You were, you were given the truth. You were given the chosen place of God's people so that you could show the rest of the world the way, the truth, and the life. And how were they to do that? By pointing to the law, by trying to keep the law, the law of Moses, the law that God gave them. The law was holy. They were to keep it. And by keeping it, they would be different from the rest of the world, and the world would see God through them. The problem was that they began to see that in and of itself as their end, as their end all be all. Didn't not thinking that there was a new law coming. There is a new way coming that would fulfill all the ways that we couldn't fulfill the old law, and that is Jesus. And that's where he starts to use this word logos. John describes Jesus with the word logos on purpose in this gospel. He's the first and only one to do it. 
logo from the very beginning. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. John began his gospel that way because Jesus is God. And he has come to earth and he has come to show us the way, the truth, and the life. These are themes that John is going to bring up over and over as we keep going through this book. He isn't just a messenger from God, although he is that. He isn't just a great prophet, although he is that. He isn't just God's son, although he is that. He is God. Co-equal with God, as the creeds tell us. Co-equal. Consubstantial is the old-fashioned word. Now, if that's true, and as you read this, a little later on in verse 37, Jesus uses that again. He says, I know that you're descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word is not in you. What did Jesus mean? Which word is, he, which word is it? I looked it up in the Greek just to be sure I was right. Okay? And it's logos, not graphene. He's not saying you haven't, hit, you haven't memorized my scriptures. My word, my written word's not in you. He's not saying that. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not in you. When you hear the word word in the New Testament, train yourself to almost always think of Jesus. Substitute Jesus in that line. Okay? So let's read it with that. In verse 31, Jesus would have said, if you continue in me, instead of saying in my word. He could have said, if you continue in me, you are truly my disciples. Go down to the other verse I read, verse 37. I know that you're descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because I, me, who I am, finds no place in you. And you see how it changes the connotation. It changes the, the, the meaning, the understanding. Um, Jesus is trying to help them see that he is truth. So, Let's answer that. Let's tackle that big question. What is truth? What is truth? It's not just what it's not just what the Bible says. It can't be just what the Bible says. Because the Bible didn't always exist to tell us what truth is. We know that for the first 300 years of Christianity or so, Christian churches were preaching the truth, but they weren't using the Bible. Because it wasn't printed in a way that they could just use it and stand up and do all this. They were sharing the gospel one-on-one -on -one and in houses and living rooms. And even they didn't always have the scrolls. We can't just default to say, well, yeah, but they had the Old Testament scrolls. Those weren't printed either. Those were handwritten. And they were usually in the synagogue. People didn't have copies of all this stuff. They didn't have copies of the book of Isaiah in their home. So we forget that they didn't have the written word for centuries what they have? Jesus. They had Jesus. How did they have Jesus? By the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit living in them. And John's going to bring us, that's where John's going to take us as we get through these middle chapters. He's going to take us to how we have, he's going to teach them how they have the Holy, when he goes away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, in, is, having the Holy Spirit is having life in Christ. And that's what he's trying to teach them. If you will continue in me, if you will remain in relationship with me, 
If you will walk hand in hand with me, if you will allow me to, you know, what's the, think about the words to the old hymn. In the garden. Okay? I hear that hymn a lot because it's one of the most often chosen hymns for funerals. One of the top three. Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, and In the Garden gets chosen probably, at least in my, where I'm at, in the circles that I run in. Now, if you sit there, and so I'm sitting there and I'm listening to it. I listen to it every week almost because I'm doing a service and somebody's chosen that. And, and sometimes I just let my mind think, what's, it, what's that hymn trying to say to us? Think through the words with me. I come to the garden alone where the dew still on the roses and the voice that I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. Think, there's some deep theology in that, in those words right there. Deep theology about a personal, living, vital, loving, moving, guiding, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ as God. And he's not even physically with us. But he is with us. He is in us. He's not only with us, he is in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the dynamic. That's what Jesus... Jesus can't say all that to them right there because they wouldn't have understood all that yet. But that's where we go with the Christian faith and that's what we know we can talk about. And that's what he meant. It's, but it's going to take that. If you... He, that's why you come back to the word if. If you're going to stay a Christian, if you're really going to last in all of the world's temptations and all of the struggles that there are in life, if you're going to persevere and make it to the end when there's heaven and joy forevermore, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to remain in me. You're going to have to remain in the Logos. Because no amount of memorizing words will do it. You can memorize the Bible from front to end, but if it never gets into your heart, it's just head knowledge. Many a people have a lot of head knowledge, but don't have a lot of heart knowledge. The Jews always spoke about the heart. The heart was, in the Hebrew, the heart means that place for our innermost being uh, that we've talked about sometimes. In the Greek world, it's the mind. So the Greek, they talk about the mind. The mind and the heart are so connected, you know. But it's more than just what we believe. It's how we, and how do we live? How we live informs what we believe. If we really believe, if we've really been walking and talking with Jesus, if he's really been guiding us, then it's going to issue forth in the way we live. And that's what he's telling them. Because that's when he says, then you'll truly be my disciples. There's true disciples and there's false disciples. Which do you want to be? I want to be a true disciple. Right? I, several years ago, God laid on me the word intentional disciple it's as if we just, I don't know, we just think we're disciples because we're already members of the church. Because we go to church, we're disciples. You know, there's a whole denomination out there called the Disciples of Christ. Boy, they must really have it figured out. You know, they're disciples. You know, uh, 
But, but what does that word really mean? A disciple means where it's, it's, it's not a static word. It's a dynamic word. A disciple is always learning. Always. We never master any subject, do we? I, I wonder if there's maybe, there's, if I could use the analogy of mathematics, because I'm terrible at math. I would never be a master at master mathematician, okay? But even the most master mathematician, you say that three times fast. <laughs> even the most master mathematician in the world never truly masters all there is to know about math. Why? Why can I, how can I say that? Because math is infinite. I love that. Math is infi inf infinity. I remember learning that symbol when I was a kid. and I, th I think actually I learned it. In, I want to say it was eighth grade math. So if some of you learned it in sixth or seventh, remember I'm a little slow at math. <laughs> but, but, you know, it looks like this. Uh, wait a second. Like this. Yeah. Right? A sideways eight, that's the way to think of it, yeah. But you can draw it without ever lifting your pencil. And never, it's no beginning and no ending, in a sense. And the, the concept of infinity, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And that, I remember that just to boggle my mind in math class. And wait a minute, there's got to be an end. Where's the end? Because we think so finitely. As humans, we are finite beings. And we think everything has a beginning and everything has an end. And only when we can step away from that thought of everything having a beginning and everything having an ending can we begin to really open ourselves up to understanding who God is. Because God has no beginning and no end. Jesus has no beginning and no end. They thought they could bring Jesus to an end, and he feels it. He knows they're trying to kill him. He says several times in this passage that we read that they're trying to kill him. He accuses them of being... Um, he accuses them of being uh, people that are they're not part of him they're not um, they're slaves he accuses them of being slaves and they reject that notion they say to him um, how is it that you say we'll be made free we're descendants of Abraham we've never been in bondage to anyone well that right there's not true you know you know what they're you know where they're getting this from they're getting the, in, in the book of Leviticus in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, I think it's 25, you could read some verses that would tell you that God gave part of their law was that no Israelite should ever be a slave. Uh, in fact, I, see, I can look it up and read it to you here real quick. It's Leviticus 25. It's worth our looking at. Been learning a new appreciation for the book of Leviticus lately. There's so much there. Um, yeah, here we go. It's toward the end of the chapter. I believe it's verse 39. And if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve you, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. 
He shall then go out from you, and he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, and he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. What's it, what is Leviticus trying to say? What does that say to you? That God has made them free. He brought them out. He redeemed them from the land of Egypt. He redeemed them from slavery. They are his children. And they are to never be considered a slave. So in their mind and in their hearts, they even had these rules. There is no way you could make your own Israelite a slave to yourself, even if he owed you money. Even if his seven years wouldn't pay it all off. In the year of Jubilee, which was the seventh year, he was going to go free. And even during that time, he wasn't your slave. He was your hired hand. Because remember, this is a world where there was much slavery. Slavery was common in the ancient world. So in that, uh, in that process, the idea of becoming free, that year of Jubilee, took on an exciting meaning. Um, I, you know, think about your own life. <laughs> what would the world be like today if we lived by the year of Jubilee? That would change everything financially, wouldn't it? <laughs> All debts are canceled after seven years. <laughs> Banks would start selling seven-year mortgages. <laughs> Make sure it's all paid off in seven years. Um, but, but the idea here is that Jesus is, Jesus is talking about freedom, and they think they're free. The, Jews, the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, they think they're free. But they're not free. They're slaves. They're slaves to who? Well, physically, they're actually slaves to the Romans. Okay, they're, bond, they're in bonds. They're a, they're a conquered people. We know that they were taken over in the Old Testament by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, and then again the Persians, and then again the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. They were never free again, really, after their kingdom fell. And here they are thinking they're so proud and they're so free. Jesus says, you're not free at all. If you were free, you would know me. It takes to know me is the only way to be free. And so he begins talking in verses 34 through 38 about what they're slaves to. Jesus draws the analogy. He says, you're slaves to sin. That's just what he says. You're slaves to sin. In a, in a, in a, in a way, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, who all commits sin? Romans 3.23 All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone commits sin at some point in time or another. And so we can identify ourselves as sinners. And then he says in verse 35 The slave does not continue in the house forever. So he tells them they're slaves. They're slaves and they're sinner slaves. But they don't continue in the house forever. Because he, he's using an interesting analogy here. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. What's he saying there? What's the difference between a slave and a son? The son is an heir. That's right. The son is an heir. Okay? There's a difference. Okay? The slave is a hired hand. He's, a, he's, he's controlled. He's property. But the son is an heir. Notice that the S there in verse 35 is a little s. You notice that? The word son, it's a little s. And then in verse 36, what does it say? 
So if the sun makes you free, but it's capital S, isn't it? John makes, wants us to be sure that he's talking about Jesus is the sun. Jesus is the ultimate sun. He's the son of God. And we're all sons of God with little s's. But if Jesus, the son, makes you free, you are free indeed. That's what he's saying, free truly. There's only one way to ever be free in this world. And it's not to own your own country or your own land or your own place or to be your own government. It's not, it has nothing to do with that. It has to be right with relationship in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be free. And what he's trying to teach here and what I think we can go on to discern here is that there is such a thing as freedom from slavery or freedom from sin. Slavery and sin. We're slaves to sin. Jesus says it right there. Do you believe me this morning that there is free that you can be free from sin? <clears throat> Most of us want to answer that question, yes, but we struggle to say it because we struggle to be it. Because sin is a struggle in our world. But listen to these words. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans. Romans chapter 6. Listen to some of these words. So what then, shall, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, he's using Jesus' words here, Jesus told them in verse 36 they were slaves of to sin. He's using that analogy. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul says, and though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient, underline that next phrase, from the heart. Paul says you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So there's a form of teaching that a disciple can be committed to. But only when that disciple is really committed from the heart is he truly uh, a true disciple and free. I'm adding in some words here. Uh, so, in a verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That would be obedience, goodness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you when deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, for the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, twice Paul uses that phrase, freed from sin. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. The outcome? Eternal life. Eternal life. So there is this... I say all that to say that as we finish the book of John, as we go through the book of John, you're, I really want you to see how John is teaching the theology 
of being entirely sanctified. John believes with all his heart that life in Christ is a life set free from sin. Now, if these people, these children of Abraham, if they could find that, if they could just hear that message, then they would see that it wasn't in their heritage that they have freedom. It's in their relationship with God that they have freedom. How does he end this passage with them? He ends in verse 38. He says, well, in, in verse, into verse 37, we've read it. Because my word finds no place in you. Because I'm not in you, Jesus says. You're not in me and I'm not in you. Verse 38, I speak of what I've seen with my father. Again, notice that Jesus always speaks of what he has seen, meaning what he has heard, meaning what he has been a part of with the father. Jesus and the Father are one. He always speaks about a time when he was with the Father and everything he does on earth, he does with the Father's leading, with the Father's guidance. Sometimes he says, whatever I've heard the Father say, that's what I say. Or sometimes whatever I've seen the Father do, that's what I do. But the reality is, Jesus is is at one with the Father. And that always comes through in John's teachings. They're in perfect sync so I speak what I've seen with my father. That's a Trinitarian doctrine there. And you do what and you do what you've heard from your father. Well, that troubles them. Okay? He's again, he noticed John capitalizes my father, the father's capitalized, but on your father, the father's not capitalized. Who begs the question, who's their father? Well, he's going to answer it in verse 44. <laughs> he's just going to come out plain and say it. Uh, you look ahead here. And we won't have time to do all of that today either. But, but as you look ahead, you see that this, this dialogue continues because they get pretty upset. They know where he's leading. And in verse 41, the second half, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They still think of their, their father as God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceed and come forth from God. Now come back to where we were to verses 39 through 41. They say Abraham is our father. They're going to they're still try and make the case. We're children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Jesus says, no. If you were Abraham's father, if you were Abraham's children, I mean, you'd do what Abraham did because the children do what the father does. Jesus is using himself as the example here. I'm the son. God's the father. I do perfectly what the God, my father, shows me and tells me. And he's trying to show that to Abraham. Abraham being righteous and being the, the, the image of, not the image, but the, the, uh, the person who represents God in the covenant here on earth to the humans. Abraham, if you were Abraham's child, you'd do what Abraham did. Well, that begs the question, what did Abraham do? What did Abraham do? What do we know about Abraham that makes him so great? He was obedient and faithful. He didn't just believe, he acted on his belief. He, he heard God call him, and he acted on it. He went, picked up his stuff and moved to a foreign land. I mean, Abraham was righteous because of his obedience to God, his faith and his obedience. But he says, now you seek to kill me. In other words, Abraham would never seek to kill me. But you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Jesus is calling himself a man here. He never, 
Jesus, you notice how Jesus never says, I'm God. Never says those words. He says, I and the Father are one. We'll hear him say that in the book of John. But he never says, hey, I'm God. I told you so. Paul later on, the Apostle Paul later on in the book of Philippians talks about that when he says, I think it's Philippians, I may get confused here, but he talks about how Jesus did not deem equality with God something to merely be grasped. He didn't use it as something he could, you know, but instead he took on the form of a servant, humbled himself as the son, even unto death. I appreciate it's Philippians. You would do what Abraham did, but here I am a man telling you what I've heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham would not have tried to kill me, in other words. You do what your father did. That's what causes them in the next few verses to... Uh, this, it, the, the, the dialogue begins to escalate. So let's begin into the next section here while we still have a few minutes here. And then we'll reflect more on it uh, next time we meet. Verse 41, and I'll read down through verse 47. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and I came forth from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. There, he just said it. Boom. You're the devil spawned. <laughs> and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature for he is the liar and the father of lies. This is all Jesus talking here. <laughs> but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Wow. Those are fighting words <laughs> to the Jewish people who have always prided themselves on being God's chosen people. How can you say we are not of God? Uh, I just the, the contrast between dark and light. Jesus is making a contrast between darkness and light. John, remember that's one of John's favorite metaphors. Jesus is the light of the world. And, he, and he's making a contrast here between the darkness and the light. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of his father, God. And there is a sharp dividing line. There's no gray area in the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of the devil. There's absolutely no gray area. There's no overlap. Jesus is saying he was a father of lies from the beginning. We know, theology teaches us, that we study the word completely, we, we know that Satan was an angel. Right? His name was Lucifer. Morning star. Uh, bright. I think the morning star actually refers to Jesus, but... But there is a section where it actually may talk of Lucifer that way a little bit too, in Isaiah, I believe. But the morning star is, is one of the words for Jesus too earlier, uh, the bright and morning star. Um, but Lucifer, nevertheless, he was, he was 
a beautiful angel. He was a, you know, as much as we can understand about angels, he was a powerful angel. But he fell. He fell from the grace of being an angelic being. And what that meant was he was kicked out of heaven. Scripture teaches us that he took a third of all the angelic beings with him. Now you can stop and think about Satan a little bit there. Either angels are really stupid for a third of them to follow him or Satan's really persuasive. I think it's the latter. Don't you? I don't think angels are really stupid. I don't want to say that. But I think Satan is really persuasive. And therein lies our problem. You and I, you and I, mere mortals, human beings, we have a choice to make. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. There is no middle ground. Because truth is not relevant. Jesus is truth. Jesus is God. And the kingdom of God is truth. There is no lie in the kingdom of God. There is no falsehood. There's no place for it in God's kingdom. So I guess what I'm trying to do for you as we close this morning is draw you into this idea that that John is trying to paint here as Jesus was trying to to rebut them. And this is going to go on. The end of the, the discussion continues. Clear to the end of chapter 8. Jesus is saying, there is no middle ground here. You're the devil. I'm of God. Want to be my disciple? Come follow me. But don't just follow me. Continue in my word. Why does come back to where we began our class today? Why is it so important to continue in the word, in Jesus? And I, I just want to keep, I can't say it enough, I want you to read your Bibles. I want you to study your Bibles. But I don't want you to rely on that for your relationship. What if our government someday turns on us? What if we become, we lose our freedoms that we just celebrated yesterday on July the 4th? What if all of a sudden we become a more communistic, socialistic type of government that can control our lives to the point where they say, that book should be banned. Let's take that book. Let's burn them all. What's going to happen to your faith? What's going to happen to your relationship? It, shouldn't, it shouldn't affect your relationship. Because there were Christians before the Bible was printed, and there's Christians even where the Bible doesn't exist. Why can I say, how can I say that? Because Christ is everywhere filling all things, and He is the Word of God. And as long we can have relationship with Him, whether we can read a word of the Bible or not. We need to get that through. So, what does it take to have a relationship with Jesus if we don't read the Bible? And I'm not advocating don't read the Bible. Again, read it. In fact, why don't you just go ahead and memorize it? That way, if they take it away, it doesn't matter. Okay? Let's all memorize the Bible. Why am I telling? No, no, I can't even tell you where it says the morning star thing. I don't, uh, I'm like my friend that says, I, I kind of know the neighborhoods, but not the exact addresses. I, I think that's in Philippians. You know, I don't know where I think I'm not, I'm not the Bible answer man at all. But why do I say that? Why do I say that? What counts is relationship. And so I've got a new phrase. You know, I told you that several years ago, God gave me the phrase intentional discipleship. We need to be intentional about being disciples. And I still think that's a good word. Um, but I like this phrase, and I give credit to Friends University. Friends University, where our daughter is studying, uh, they have what they call the Apprenticeship Institute. 
to make apprentices for Jesus. I love that word. An apprentice is more than a disciple. A disciple is forever a student, a learner. But an apprentice does the work along with his teacher and does as he learns from the teacher. Do you get the difference? It's it, it, an apprentice. I mean, you, when you're an apprentice plumber, you're getting your hands dirty and you're, you're fitting the pipes and you're doing the work. You're an apprentice electrician. You're running the conduit and you're, you're hooking up the wires. That's what, that's what this life is. We're to be apprentices for Jesus. We are doing the work he directs us to do, but we're the ones getting our hands dirty. We're the ones out there needing to be Jesus. So, leave you with that thought. Jesus could have easily said, this could have in the Greek, could have been translated to the English to say, you would truly be my apprentices. I believe that's the spirit of what it was trying to say. Well, we've talked a lot uh, this morning. Thank you for your time this morning. We're going to continue the dialogue. This is a very important dialogue. I will not be here next Thursday. Going to be gone for one week of uh, some vacation away. So, no Bible study next Thursday. Okay? Then no prayer time either. Okay. So, but I'll be back the following week. That's a pretty fun tune right there. <laughs> Good time. No, that's okay. So, next week, none. Back on the next week. Okay? I don't know what that date is, but that would be right after, that would be like the 19th of July, I think. 12th we're off, the 17th we're on. Okay. Any, any last minute thoughts or questions? Comments? Great, great attentiveness. Thank you for your time today and learning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together today, especially in light of the freedom that we've just celebrated on, on uh, July the 4th. We must not take that for granted. There are so many people in our world with no freedom and little freedom. We have so much we do take it for granted. Father, I, I just want to pray today to thank you for the gift and the grace of freedom. And I pray that it would extend to everyone someday, somehow. But Lord, most of all, I pray for an ever-increasing measure of your spirit, of your truth of your word, your very being within us, guiding us, moving us, teaching us, uh, helping us to live righteous lives, lives of holiness. So thank you for this time together where we can discuss your word and to learn and grow in your spirit. And we give you praise this morning through Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.